0: Hello, how are you? It's episode 36 of Grow Yourself Up. Thanks for being here. And this week I'm going to be talking to Tammy Thomas about growing ourselves up in adult friendship and what that can look like. Because often we try and get um all our needs met in only a few relationships. And as we grow and change and as we grow ourselves up, we become interested in different things. We become different, actually. And so you may find yourself needing to get some new friends or maybe that you don't fit so well with some of your friends. And, um, Tammy talks about her journey around that and how it doesn't mean we have to make our existing friendship group bad or the new friends good. There's, there's kind of a, a, a middle way, some, some way to be moderate and to value all the relationships you have in your life. Um, for what those friendships offer you, not in a transactional way, but um, also honoring your own growth. The second part of what Tamu and I focus on in this episode is around how people-pleasing turns up in uh, work. So we talk a bit about how that can manifest if you are an entrepreneur, you own your own business, you are self-employed, and also what it looks like when you are employed and you work in a corporation. Um, so people-pleasing is part of uh, what I would categorize as the fawn stress response. That's also sometimes called please and appease. And I really want to emphasize that this behavior is a way that we learned to survive in our childhood ho- uh, home. Really... um People pleasing and well, for the foreign response is a very, um, sophisticated neurobiological response. And, um, often I think people pleasing is a bit misunderstood, but also gets a, um, a bad rap as if we're just being too nice in adverted commas and that we need to just be a bit more tough. But really it's actually about learning we're safe in the moment without pleasing and appeasing other people. So because if we consider this um, response from a nervous system perspective, what we are doing is we are sending signs of safety to um, the other person or even a corporation actually when they could be perceived as an aggressor. So we're getting signs of danger from them and we essentially kind of neutralize the situation to try and keep ourselves safe. And so it's a very sophisticated behavior adaptation that you learned in, in childhood. This is really woven into how you survived. And so be very um, gentle with yourself as you listen to um, this. And, you know, if you, if you notice, um, if you recognize yourself in some of the descriptions, that's okay. Part of learning how to unwind this is to really um, develop an embodied sense of safety now in your body and um, claim your truth and your power. And, and that takes a lot of practice. Because first of all, you have to become really aware of, of um, your behavior. Okay, so
1: let's dive in. We're going to dive straight into talking about adult friendship. So that journey of tending to myself really began round about 2016. I think that the age 38 is like an age of reckoning. And there was so much stuff that I couldn't keep down anymore. It was bubbling up in the, uh, to the surface when I was 38. So I started to really look at uh, my quote-unquote shadows. I started to look at the parts of myself I had distanced myself from, that I had buried, I had pushed down parts of myself. And um, I kind of felt like, um, my alter ego was Ursula from um the um Little Mermaid. <laughs> I felt like if I really allowed myself to be myself fully, I would be this big, gargantuous sea monster that takes people's voices away and does a this and that and the other. so you were scared of your power. I was terrified of my power, terrified, and what I realized is that I was terrified. Of people's reaction to my power. So I then started chopping bits off, splintering, fragmenting myself so I could make myself small. So my analogy was like, Tam, you're walking around life in a pair of too tight skinny jeans. We all know skinny jeans that are too tight are damn uncomfortable because skinny jeans are quite uncomfortable in the first place. And I was like, you need bigger jeans. So I consciously and deliberately set about making friends with, with new people, because some of the thing is, the people I was around before that were so used to who I was at 17, 25, 30, they were finding it difficult. It's like they could see me, but their nervous system could tell that my nervous system had changed, yeah. and there was a clash. It was a bit like, I'm seeing you, but you're a, you're a stranger. And I'll be honest, like I got into a bit of a judgmental space, like, if you can't handle me, then da-da-da, but it was very much like, well, you're not keeping up with me kind of thing. So I thought, well, instead of me struggling, I'm not letting, I know these relationships are relationships I have for life. There were so many and still are so many beautiful elements of those relationships. I knew that I needed to form relationships with people who could accept me as I am now, with people who are, because uh, most of my friends work um, as um, employed, so they don't have the same experience as somebody who's self-employed or an entrepreneur. So I thought, I need to make friends with people who are doing a similar thing, who are um, curious about things that are similar to me, so that I can have these really geeky conversations about the nervous system or about ways we want to evolve and grow and shape the coaching industry or the way we want to be able to serve our customers and also the things we experience. Because when you do this work, you have coaching, you have mentors, you have therapy, you've got all of this stuff going on to help you build self-awareness and also take action that is in alignment with who you are now. I wanted to be able to have conversations with people who were there So I wasn't having to explain and justify myself. So that really helped me realize, actually, it's not just that my friends were um, experiencing me differently and I was experiencing them differently. I had expectations of them based on what was going on in my inner world, but I wasn't sharing what was going on in my inner world because I was fearing judgment. So I needed to cultivate relationships That could meet me where I am and expand and have the conversations I wasn't able to have elsewhere. And those relationships where I was able to have those conversations about business and development, et cetera, they're lovely, but I can't look at their house uninvited and just get into bed because I'm knackered and wake up and there'll be a meal provided. And those are the sorts of relationships I've got with people who aren't in the same space as I am in relation to talking about the nervous system and whatever else. Um, and similar for them with me, they can come around to my house, open my fridge, put food on the stove and warm it up. And we can have a conversation and laugh about stuff that happened in college. And I wouldn't have that conversation with my newer friends. So it was about realizing one group of friends or one person is not the unlimited source of all. I am the unlimited source of all because I work in partnership with the divine and these relationships, it's not about being transactional, but our connection is in different places. Yes. So let me honor that connection instead of unconsciously make demands because I'm not meeting a need and I'm projecting it into the friendship. The friendship. And also what you've really highlighted is that we have to take responsibility
0: for ourselves in relationship. And that it's, it's it, what you referenced earlier about when you dissociate and you just cut people out. That's a, that's a much more childlike coping strategy that many of us have used where we can't kind of take the heat of actually discussing and, and maybe some conflict around how we're we going to have the friendship go. And so I love the way you've painted that picture of, of, of growing yourself up in that arena actually of noticing that you had needs that couldn't be met in some of your existing friendships, but that that doesn't mean that those friendships have no worth and that they would need to be thrown away. It was just that you can exactly. keep those relationships for, um, for what they do offer and celebrate that. And I think that's such a powerful thing to recognize um, in motherhood because a lot of my clients talk about how they spend time sometimes with people now who are not really their friends, that they kind of their mom friends, but they don't know them that well. And then they get sometimes crossed with some of their older friends because they don't understand or they're not having the same experience or they have older children. And so then you're not in the same life stage. And really, taking responsibility for ourselves and all our friendships is quite complex, actually. So I love the way you've painted that trajectory for us. And I guess I want to also say to the listeners that maybe you're in that stage of dissociating or judging people and you know that's the place you are in your process. And that's also okay because we have to kind of experiment with stuff before we get to a place of really taking responsibility and seeing what we're doing. I've had something like this with my sisters. I've learned so much from that, And I've had a similar process with my sisters, actually, where um, I really had to notice what I was expecting from them and what I was bringing and what are some of it, all of us together, because our mother's dead, were trying to get too much from each other, actually, in some way. Mm. And we had to renegotiate those boundaries in adult life to see that each of us had to prioritize our nuclear families now because we've all got young children, but we've learned to be in relationship in a much more adult way. That's really nourishing and lovely. I mean, a touch wood, hope we don't have a fight tomorrow. But sometimes we do that as well.
1: And then it all goes <laughs> pear-shaped. But, um, but that, that's so normal. And you have that healthy other adult place to come back to. Like we never stay in that healthy adult place. <laughs> But when you've practiced being there, you know your way back. Yes, you, you know that, you know it's there. And hopefully, most of the time, you remember. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, you know, in what you're saying, it's, it's just not fair because what happens is, uh, in that responsibility piece, it's not fair. And to use like, and that, you know, language we all will understand really easy, it's not your fault either. Yeah. We have grown up in a society that conditions us to neglect our responsibility and blame instead. Yes. So instead of looking like, oh my goodness, I messed up, I could have done that differently. Because um we are taught that anything other than being nice, anything other than being good, anything other than being positive is bad. And if it is bad, you are bad. So then we get into that shame spiral I'm bad. They think I'm a bad person. Everything I do is bad. This is the same thing I did in 1997 and I did it again in 2005. You become shrouded in shame. Yes, And then because shame likes secrecy and shame makes people feel so uncomfortable, you're then ashamed of being ashamed. So then you're doubling down on the shame because we're also taught that shame is the way we remedy bad behavior. But shame is not the way we remedy bad behavior compassion remedies shame, Uh, empathy remedies shame. And when you start to, what I learned is when I started to offer myself compassion, when I started to be empathetic with myself, when I started to forgive myself for not knowing what I didn't know when I didn't know it, I was able to extend that to the people I'm in relationship with. And it also had an impact on my work because Uh, Something I've been talking about a lot and you and I have touched on um, earlier on is the way people pleasing can undermine our work. Yes, massively. Because I talk about toxic productivity all the time. It's like my, my pet topic. And as I sit and explore and discuss with friends and observe the behavior of my clients and people I see around me and conversations that arise from whether it's something I posted on social media or a podcast or whatever, what I realized was, huh, toxic productivity is a manifestation of people-pleasing because people-pleasing says, I'm not good enough as I am, so I'm going to prove myself. I am going to create an illusion of who I am to manipulate you into thinking I'm wonderful so you can tell me I'm great and that can give me a sense of worth. And that's what we do in our workplaces as well. So in work, we tolerate, and I'm, you know, I'm just going to use really plain language, we tolerate bad behavior. Yeah. We tolerate bad behavior from managers and we don't advocate for, for, ourse- for ourselves because we don't want to be seen as a troublemaker. Not realizing that actually having a healthy conversation enables you to share with your manager, this is my job description, or with yourself when you're self-employed, these are my values and this is the best way I can deliver it. It's within the um, guidance, it's within the code of conduct and all of that. But what's happening right now is running me ragged and I'm not being, I'm not able to operate in in the best way I possibly can. It looks like being a self-employed person. So we're service-based business people. We offer a service And I think that people who do therapy, healing work, coaching or whatever, we are high functioning codependents. Hopefully, the vast majority of us are in recovery. But it means then that we are so focused on the fact that we can help and that we've got the tools, the skills, the resources, the experience that we lose track of who we are here to serve. So we enter into relationships with clients. Who are not a match for what we are offering. So then we have to shrink and make ourselves small. We believe we have to shrink and make ourselves small to match the energy of the person sitting in front of us. And we think, I've said yes now. So I need to tolerate this now rather than actually having conversations with our clients and say, well, actually, this is what we contracted on. This is the service I'm providing. I'm noticing that you are unwilling to take responsibility and I want to have a conversation about that so we can look at a fairer distribution of power. Yeah, We don't have those conversations and not necessarily in that way, um, but we don't have those conversations. We end up tolerating, making ourselves small and then um, having a, um, resentment in the relationship we have with our clients. And then we're not talking to the people we really want to talk to We're not serving the people we really want to serve. And then again, we start getting into the dialogue of, I don't matter. I'm not enough. People don't see my value because we're not showing up in our value because we've got ourselves tangled in relationships, in client relationships where we now believe we have to show up in a particular way because of the way that person is operating. Yeah. When we can identify our pleasing behaviors we can start to look at what the root of that behavior is. So me, it's Ursula. But if I speak really powerfully, I'm going to take people's voices away because I'm going to be like Ursula. Well, what is the um, illuminated side of Ursula? Ursula knew exactly who she was. Yeah. She didn't pretend. She knew exactly who she was. She knows exactly how powerful she is. She knows that she intimidates people. When I own that part of Ursula, I can have a look at the parts I need to address so that I'm able to engage with people and share who I am in a manner that is safe and where people feel safe enough to be brave. And I also need to be very clear about who I am, what I represent, and how powerful I am so people choose to work with me because they see that in themselves And they want to be in a coaching relationship where they have permission to behave in that way. Bending down, and and, and this isn't meant to be judgmental, but bending down to make yourself smaller to match the energy of somebody is back-breaking work. It's better that you let that person go so they can find somebody that works in that domain. So you can focus on your zone of genius. My work is not for beginners. If you are a beginner, you're going to be really triggered by my work. My work is not for people who have unresolved trauma. I'm from a social work background, I'm trauma informed, but coaching work, the work of growth, and the challenge that's involved in um, coaching can feel like an attack if you are still in the midst of your, uh, you know, you still got that trauma energy stuck inside your body, I'm going to feed into narratives and patterns that may have caused that trauma in the first place. So if I, if I'm not showing up as I am, like the illuminated version of Ursula, then I'm not giving myself the best opportunity to operate in my fullness. Yes. And when you are operating in your fullness,
0: you invite all your clients into their own fullness. And I think that the important thing about Ursa also is that it's a it's an it's an environment of abundance. So you being in your light and in your power doesn't mean someone else can't be in their light and their power. There's enough light and power. We all are allowed light, light. we all allowed power. We all have our own sources of that. Yeah. And I love what you said about people pleasing and how we accept bad behavior because I don't think everyone on this list is, is an entrepreneur or, or has their own business. But um, many people in employment also accept um, bad behavior from bosses, um, gaslighting from colleagues, and all of that. Because often in our workplaces, we recreate our family in some way. So we have our dysfunctional family patterns playing out. You, you know, People become our parents, and, and the same dynamics happen where we think we need to be good, perfect, and nice. And so often actually when you've been most gaslit or your boss is really critical, what often happens is you double down on your own productivity. You think, oh, I can't touch that shame. I've got to be much more productive and more perfect. And so you get yourself into a cycle where it's just kind of all downhill. And that's it's subconscious. So we're not typically aware that our shame is being touched until we've done a lot of work. We just think, I've got this wrong. I'm bad. Yeah. And so, um Notice if any of you are listening, notice if that comes up to you in your own work and what gets triggered and how your own family dynamics may
1: play out in your workplace. And that's often what keeps us trapped. And to add to that, it's not limited to work. No. Yeah. That you, you know, work that you're, um, contracted to do. It can also manifest as taking it upon yourself to be the person that um, becomes a buddy or mentor for new employees. Yeah. It can also manifest as being the person that everybody automatically assumes will organize birthday cards, birthday cakes, baby showers. Leaving gifts. Leaving gifts. It means that you then become the default carer in the workplace. So you then take on caring responsibilities in addition to overworking to prove that you are able to work well. So I remember being a social worker and being the person that would be the buddy for newly qualified social workers and being the person that people would default would sort out the birthday cards and the cake or whatever the case may be. And because of that maladaptive wonky programming, my um, reaction, because it wasn't a response, it happened below the level of consciousness, was that, I now have to really overwork so people don't think that me being a buddy and me going off and sorting out Christmas lunches and all of that kind of stuff was impacting my, because this is the one that social workers are always lambasted with, impacting my time management. Not taking into consideration that the 37 and a half hours a week we were allocated to work, that we were paid for, were not sufficient for the job anyway. So that already was an insufficient amount of time. Take on top of that, going to meetings and appointments with newly qualified social workers, talking them through things, um, allowing them to accompany you on your appointments and whatever else and explaining things to them. Then showing up restaurants to make a booking for your team of 12 people or whatever the case may be, who's vegetarian, who needs gluten free, who's allergic to nuts. All of that takes its toll. And then what happens? You go home and your home life gets the dregs at the bottom of the barrel of your energy. And then you're wondering why you're snapping at your partner, why you don't have the patience and care you'd like to have for your children. It all has a really massive impact and something. I could have done if I was able to be resourced enough. And if I at that time had known about myself enough, I would have been able to say, with this workload, I can take on one newly qualified social worker. And I think we should start a rota for organizing the cards, the leavings, the XYZ. Because I don't have the capacity to do it, I didn't do that because everything was so built up inside that I believed if I was to speak, I would be like a fire breathing dragon, and then people would think that I'm aggressive, I can't handle things, etc. It would have, it would have come from a really emotive place, and it would not have been productive. And when you're a people pleaser who really likes people to like you. Conducting yourself in a way that that you believe will alienate people feels somatically like death. Yeah. You avoid it at all costs. But if I had known then what I know now, I would have been able to have a healthy conversation. I would have been able to take my 100% responsibility and leave people to take their own responsibility instead of overworking to try and preempt what people's reaction would be and conduct myself in a way where I could try and elicit the most positive response um, possible. And I know I'm talking, 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 but this also relates to the, um, if you're a self-employed person, the products you offer and how you price your offers, yes. the money you want to make as an employed person, this also impacts how you, um, reflect and Um, analyze the work you've done so that you can present yourself in a manner that is effective and really clearly demonstrates your worth to support you asking for a promotion or a pay rise. You stop being scared and thinking, are they going to think I'm showing off? It's going to look like I'm trying to take credit for stuff I haven't done, etc. And you can get really, really clear about who you are and what you offer and operate from that place Rather than feeling like you're walking around life with your skirt tucked in your ties, and I know what you just said about,
0: I mean, the what you would have done differently if you'd you'd known it, because as you say that, it sounds relatively simple. It, it you know it doesn't involve you kind of going to do some sort of big dance. It was really about um, honouring yourself and knowing that you didn't have to do all these extra bits and bobs on top of it already. Job that was probably actually sixty hours a week or something. Exactly. And what would you say? Because I'm noticing we're coming towards the end of our time. What would you? And I, I want to give you time to talk about um, your programs and where people can find you. But what would you say has been the biggest thing um, in terms of? Because I, I, and I know there's way too much to go into to give us a detailed picture. But the bridge from um, where you were operating to to where where you are now, what resourcing
1: has helped you the most? It's such a patchwork, but I would say the biggest has been feeling safe to connect with my body and feeling safe enough to explore what my felt sense, what the sensations in my body are telling me, because before I would contact a sensation thing, oh my gosh, that means I'm going to get really angry or I'm going to get really sad. I'm going to get anxious and I would bury it. So the biggest resource has been slowing down, getting present contacting the emotions and the sensations and seeing what they're about instead of automatically assuming the worst because the thing that has got me um to build the bridge is that most of the time my feelings are saying tell me this isn't right it needs to change and when i obey that feeling that i'm able to then make changes and change my mind before i would be worried about changing my mind and altering things because I had this notion that authenticity is being exactly the same all the time. And this enables me, you know, as we inhale, we exhale, we're constantly taking in and letting go. It helped me feel safer to let go of things so I could take in things according to where I am right now and the data I have right now.
0: Yeah. And the, and we're allowed to change our minds.
1: We're allowed to be different. And I just want to share just very quickly, because people think, well, how? The first thing was literally that heart, um, hand on my chest and asking my heart, what do I need? And waiting. Sometimes there would be a response. Sometimes there wouldn't be a response. Sometimes the response was, um, tears. Sometimes the response was, you need to get to the gym today, love. Um, just allowing myself to build a relationship where my body felt safe to communicate with me. And I know when we talk like that, it's like we're saying our body's some entity over there, but we make our bodies an entity over there because we separate ourselves from them. So it was like really reintroducing myself to my body because we talk about us not being able to trust our bodies. We build this notion that we can't trust our bodies. Well, guess what? When we build a relationship where we can't trust our bodies, our bodies can't trust us either. So they don't necessarily automatically, our our inner knowing, our intuition, that felt sense, that deep wisdom doesn't necessarily respond to us immediately because we too need to build a trusting relationship with our bodies because we have let them down time and time again. Literally just that, that hand and, okay, if you don't want to say anything now, I'll come back. I'm not going to disappear. I am going to come back. And actually coming back and cultivating that relationship has been the most profound healing and supportive experience um, I've ever had ever. And it took me 40 years to get to that place. I'm now 45 and I'm now in a position where I'm able to do that without wincing, without wanting to flick myself off. But it took time. And um, one of the things that enabled me to be able to do it is I didn't give myself an arbitrary time scale. I made peace with the fact that it would take as long as it takes. And it's as simple as that. And it does take a long time. And the, um, finding the willingness is the first step, but then
0: really being willing to always turn to ourselves and to become our own best friend range and support ourselves. Indeed. Yeah, I, I agree with you about that being one of the most beautiful things. And I wanted to say to the listeners, one of the things that Tamu talked about, about how she wouldn't let her rage come out because she thought people wouldn't like her. She wouldn't let anything else come out. Many of us have learned in our families that we are only acceptable when we have like the good range of feelings. So like we're allowed to be happy and joyful and pleased, but but only in like a manageable, small band. We can't have any rage, boredom, apathy, um, anger, sadness. All of that is seen as um, if you think about it from when you were a child, you know you might have been sent away or the the attachment relationship got broken because your parents might have said, don't be what you said, a baby, don't behave like that. If you're going to behave like that, then I can't do this. So there's, there's a lack of um, uh, experience and also of acceptance around our full emotional lives. And actually, you can be lovable. You are lovable, even when you have experienced rage, anger, and boredom, all of those things. And I think a huge, huge part of this is allowing our full emotional expression and not thinking that means we're a bad person. We are a person who's got our whole, like I imagine it's like a circle of emotions and everything is in there, not just the top half, which is all like the sunny stuff. So I really want you to hear that. Now, now Tamu, can you tell us about where we can find you, like your websites and your Instagram and about any programs that you're offering or masterclasses that
1: might be useful and that this audience might like? Um, the best place to come and find me is uh, the community center, <laughs> otherwise known as Instagram. <laughs> Um, and my Instagram handle is at lib360, Um That's the best place to come and find me. Um, if you sign up to my uh, mailing list, I share information about what I'm doing there and um, some helpful stuff on there as well. I could absolutely talk about like programs and offerings I have, but I think uh, bearing in mind what I said about, you know, rebuilding the relationship with my body and getting to know myself, come on over to my Instagram, come on over to my mailing list, get to know me, and then you will find out about my offers and see whether any of them um, appeal to you. Well, I can recommend Tamu's uh, programs and also her, um,
0: her her newsletter and her Substack, and lots of um, wonderful uh, truth bombs on her Instagram and lovely lives as well. <laughs> So head on over. And Tamu, I wanted to say thank you so much for your time. I'm putting my hand on my heart because I've been very touched by your work. Thank you. And it's really joyful to be sitting here
1: with you. Thank you for giving up this time to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.
0: You've been listening to Grow Yourself Up, hosted by Kath Cunahan. We'll be back next week with a new episode supporting you to better understand and tend to yourself for more heart-centered, connected, authentic and resilient living.